0: Broadcast the game like you don't matter. If you get hit by a bus walking in, they're still going to play the game. Respect the game and what you're covering and have fun with it. But short of that, you know, if you don't show up, somebody else will call it and they'll still have a winner and a loser.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of Just Getting Started here in the special series of Just Getting Started that we began to... Start dropping, as the kids might say, once the NFL season began, because it's only the finest voices that the NFL has to offer, and a man who's called many Super Bowls and calls only the biggest games on the NFL on Fox, the Pete Rozelle Award winner of 2020 from the Pro Football Hall of Fame, my good friend, Joe Buck. How are you, Joseph?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Can you uh, hear me on this newfangled Zoom thing? Are we all good?
1: I can indeed hear you on this newfangled Zoom thing, Joe. Uh, Um, I appreciate this. Are we still doing it.
0: this in 2021? <laughs> like we got to do this for the rest of our lives? Is this what is this what we've become?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd have you over. You know, I'd have you over. Yeah, uh, I feel like you you'd do the same for me again. We for were, sure. You know, yeah. Way back. Come um, on,
0: that. yeah. It's good to it's good to be on with a friend. It's good to see you. You did a hell of a job. I feel like nobody ever uh, tells the MC of events like that either thank you or gives a round of applause for the job you did. So it was great watching you. You did a Thanks. tremendous job. And that was a fun fun weekend in Canton. And uh, I'm glad to be on the other side of it, to be honest with you, and and pointed toward the regular season.
1: Well, I mean, th- this, this show is about origin stories. And you having this moment for you in your professional career um, leads in many different ways to an origin story about how you got started. The fact that you are in the pro football hall of fame is a Roselle award winner. Um, uh, and there's a, uh, there's, there's a lot of bucks on the wall, man. <laughs> That's, what, 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 how does that land for you? I mean, how um, does that actually sit for you? when that happens, Joe.
0: Well, I mean, it, it is weird. If we are talking origin stories, to think of Fox getting the rights in 1994, which nobody saw coming, and, and then David Hill, an Australian guy who's putting together the stable of announcers and they buy instant credibility with... Madden and Summerall and Stockton and Millen and then they wanted to give younger guys a chance and it turned out to be younger guys who had older guys in their family tree that uh, had done it for a long time whether it's me with my dad or Renneman with his dad or Kenny Albert with his dad or Kevin Harlan with his dad I mean it was just it was a whole run of a roster of people that had been around it their whole lives, but had never really done it. I mean, I I was standing there on opening day in 1994 in Chicago, getting ready for the Bears and the Buccaneers, having never done, not just the NFL, but having never done football in my life uh, and trying to fake my way through it. So, yeah, to get that award under 30 years later is kind of mind-blowing, but uh, still, you know, I've worked hard between then and now, and, uh, you know, I'm glad to share that wall with my dad
1: so um what, what you you'd never called a football game before
0: not that anybody other than my close family could hear yeah i'd never i' never I'd never done it I mean i you know, I'd done major league baseball at that point for four years. I did minor league baseball for two years prior to that. I'd done some other things I'd done horse jumping and college basketball and all these other things, but I'd never done football, and so when Fox got the rights, they sent. A call out to a bunch, you know, to agents and uh, to people to have their clients uh, audition. And, and I went out there for an audition based on my mom giving my soon to be boss, Ed Gorin's wife, Patty, my baseball tape and said, I know my son will be she said, I know my son will be good at football. And so they, I think that that got me in the door for the audition. And then I worked on calling football with my dad in his living room uh, at spring training 1994. And I flew to LA and I went into the studio and Bob Stenner's talking to me in my headset and I'm sitting next to Tim Green and we call a game off uh, a television monitor. And I knew it was going well, but I walked out of the audition and George Krieger, who was one of the bosses at the time at Fox, said, "You better get an agent because we're going to hire you." And I basically walk, basically walked out of there, walked back to the air, walked back to the car, back to the airport, flew back to Florida for spring training, knowing that I had just been hired by Fox. It was kind of crazy.
1: No kidding. I mean, it, it's, it's wild, Joe, that that's the way you you got that gig. And then so who was your who was your first broadcast partner?
0: The guy that I ended up uh, auditioning with, Tim Green, was my first broadcast partner. So I went Tim Green, Bill Moss, Brian Baldinger, and then kind of, I think that was it before Madden and Summerall went their separate ways and Madden went to another network and Summerall retired and they put me with Troy Aikman with Chris Collinsworth and the three of us filled in for them starting in 2002.
1: And so uh, in between all that obviously World Series took place. What's your first memory? Give me your first sports memory. Joe, i always I don't think I've My ever My first asked you
0: ever that. sports memory? Yeah,
1: like you remember, like like the ultimate uh, yeah. introduction, you know, uh, I, I I I've never asked you that. I figured we're talking origin stories. This is a perfect opportunity to ask you that.
0: Being in the back of the booth when I was maybe three at Bush Stadium, four, but not at much older than that if I was, and sitting on the back ledge in the radio booth, watching my dad and Mike Shannon and I think Bob Starr at the time call the Cardinal game on radio, and I was excited, and I moved my arm real fast and I knocked a soda over on top of my dad and Mike Shannon and Bob Starr who were down there calling the game and they turned around like somebody just ran in the booth and threw it at him, but it was me, this little chubby kid uh, who knocked soda down on him and uh, I cried and I guess was not it wasn't too traumatic of an experience because I went back the next day and I basically grew up in that booth so. Any of my first anythings go back to the radio booth at Bush Stadium, old Bush Stadium. And uh, that's the earliest one that I can remember, which leads to like Lou Brock's 3000th hit and different things that happened in Cardinal history. But but I think that's the earliest that I can remember of being a little kid and and making my dad sticky.
1: Exactly. is this, so was this always something you wanted to do cuz you saw your dad do it you were exposed to it it's something that you grew into wanting to do or you just always knew this was it
0: i it's i just wanted to be him i wanted to be him i wanted to i mean i wanted to play like everybody you know a lot of my friends did and then reality set in so uh i i just saw a guy who was my friend as much as he was my dad who took me on road trip after road trip. I was in every National League city by the time I was 12. And, uh, I I saw a dad who went to work every day and couldn't wait to get there. And I saw a guy who loved going to work more than being off. And so I think no matter what he did, whether he was, uh, Uh, you know a lawyer a policeman a plumber a firefighter or a broadcaster an astronaut or whatever it was going to be that's what I wanted to do and it just so happened that it it was sports announcer and uh, I I paid attention as a little kid and uh, had a master's class of watching a hall of famer do games 10 feet from me every night of the summer so I think unless I was a complete moron most of that was going to sink in and it did.
1: I love every last part about this, Joe. And, you know, you and I, again, we've known each other for a very long time. And I remember seeing you call your first World Series on Fox um, because I was a diehard Yankee fan, but I was also just new to SportsCenter. Like, I got to SportsCenter just as you got into the booth for Fox for the World Series. And I just remember what it was like for me to cover it on Sports Center. what was that like for you to call that World Series in that yeah, first time? Yeah,
0: I, I think that's another good first, is being at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, and it's the Yankees' return to greatness. It's Jeter's rookie year. It's Joe Torre, who I grew up around uh, as a St. Louis Cardinal, who used to play poker in our basement with Come my on. dad when I was really? a little kid. Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so there was there was a lot of uh, old home week stuff going on every time I would call a Yankee game. And to, to be 27 and to, to carry that for the network and be there in the Bronx and in Atlanta and proclaim the Yankees as world champions, it's something I never thought I would do. Um, I, I, as I said, I wanted to be my dad and to be in my mind, my being my dad meant being the cardinal announcer and. Uh, Anything beyond that was stuff that I never even thought of. And my dad had two years that were not real good on the national level doing games with Tim McCarver in 90 and 91, and and I saw kind of the nasty side of the tougher side of network broadcasting. So for all the great memories I had of growing up, I saw a lot of the bad stuff of being in the national spotlight and uh, getting a chance to do that at a young age... You know, every everything happened way faster than I ever thought it would, or I'm sure my dad ever thought it would.
1: I am mandated to ask what the stakes were in that poker game. <laughs>
0: I, I you mandated. know, I, I'm sure they weren't low. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. a lot of a lot of chips. I was a little kid, like, okay. sitting on my dad's lap. I probably sat on Joe Torre's lap and right. was throwing chips around. Uh, but they were playing for, you know, thousands of dollars. I would assume.
1: Okay. I'm just wondering. So, so you have maybe you're aware. You have probably seen Red Deans go all in. Is what you're basically. Seeing. I've
0: seen Red Deans go all in. I've seen Dan Deerdorf go all, go all in. I've seen uh, my dad. I've seen Tori. I've seen various <laughs> other professional athletes go all in uh, during the course of my childhood. My very weird childhood. And, it's uh, no,
1: oh, come on. It's it's it, it, it is um it is truly amazing. You know, and it, it's you know, obviously you, you, you've heard so many stories about your father. I'm sure I, I, when, before I took a job, um, my job with sports center, I, I was all, I was flown out to St. Louis to have, um, a meeting with a local station. I think it was KPLR. Is that yeah, is that, channel 11? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So I, and I remember I go into some like mahogany walled office that looked like something out of the final scene of network and it's this long table and somebody who was I think the station manager or owner wanted to meet me and told me about what a type of community St. Louis is and the sports voices in St. Louis and basically told me about Jack Buck and how he has been so ingrained in the local community, and speaks at so many different events, and that this is the type of person I needed to be if I was going to come to St. Louis. And my first thought was, "I'm all in," <laughs> you know. Yeah, like, absolutely. I'm. I, I. But it was. It was like the word of of this station saying, "You will follow in the footsteps of Jack Buck." here in St. Louis. And I, you know, I I obviously knew who your dad was, but I, I can only imagine you growing up around that and, and carrying that with you every day.
0: Yeah, it was a lot. I mean, it, it was definitely a lot. And uh, I don't complain about it because it came with so many positives right. that we just talked about. I mean, growing up in the atmosphere that I grew up in, you know, that that's what prepared me to do what I did at an early age, but, but, you know, the guy you're talking about, his name's Ted Coppler. Yeah, and okay. and, I remember and, that name and that's why it was KPLR Coppler. Um, <laughs> and, and you think about the announcers that, that made their name in St. Louis. It was my dad. It was Harry Carey. It was Bob Costas. It was Dan Deerdorf, It was Dan Kelly, uh, great hockey voice. It was, on and on and on and on. And and, it, and a lot of it centered around KMOX Radio, which is the flagship station of the Cardinals. And then everybody would kind of shoot off in their various directions. But uh, there, is a, there is a really strong history of sports announcing in the city. And then when you have it not only in your city, but you have it in your house and at your dinner table, it, it carries with it a lot of pressure, a lot of good pressure. But uh, I, I've always, and, and certainly back then, but I, I've always felt the weight of that, carrying that forward. And, and uh, to this day, think about doing something that would embarrass my dad almost as much as as doing something that could embarrass me. And and it's it's right there, uh, neck and neck.
1: Well, obviously, it's all working good in the hoods, if, if you will. And now here we are. And What number season is this for you now? So I guess this would be 20, season 27 of you calling the NFL? Season 28?
0: 28. Yeah, damn. since '94, so getting up on 30 years. I'm signed one more year. Uh, damn it! I wish it was. I wish wish it was two more years, and I could say, "Hey, I did 30 years." And it's been fun and going on to the next chapter of my life. But I, I love it. I mean, I love going to work, and and that's the best thing, you know. For everything I said about my dad, I hope and, and I think if you had my daughters on, Natalie and Trudy, who are 25 and 21, not my three year old boys. But the girls, they would tell you that they see the same thing in me. Like, I'd rather go do a game than be off. I'd rather call a Super Bowl than watch a Super Bowl. I'd rather call a World Series than watch a World Series. I'd rather, you know, that's a great feeling. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'd i like to think I carried that forward too, that I, I, I have this love for doing what I do. And and if I ever did take it for granted, um I certainly don't anymore after the kind of ups and downs that I've had, um, you know, with my health and with different things that that have gone on with me. So I, I have a complete joy in doing what I do. So I I literally can't wait for the football season to start. We have a lot of games, obviously with Thursday, Sunday. Yeah. Um, But, but I like it that way. I'd rather work than not. So that's good.
1: Well, and obviously that, that there's that time in October, where you are just going from one event to the next of going to World Series games, calling World Series games, and then going to a Thursday night and calling more World Series games. I, I imagine that is you in your element. That's it. That's it. Like, and and then you go from one Hall of Famer uh, in Smoltz to another Hall of Famer in Aikman and they're both so amazing at what they do. They make me smarter and they call their shots. It's like, you know, Smoltz is like, watch out, you know, left fielder has a problem, you know, when the ball's hitting the gap, then the ball's hitting the gap or Aikman's like, well, this matchup top of the screen is, it could be an issue. Top of the screen. There's an issue. I mean, it really is remarkable. Calling of shots by the guys who sit next to you.
0: And I love them like I love them like brothers, you know, and that's the best thing is that I can lean on them. I can be half in, half out with both, all in with all of it, but I, I am not there every minute. So I know that if I've been gone from Troy and I walk in and I do a Thursday game and I've been doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday baseball. He's ready to go. He knows I'm ready to go. But I can lean on him a little bit that week, and then I come back to baseball. And either I'm tired, or I'm uh, you know leading into the game, never in the game. But I, if if I'm trying to just scramble and get ready, I can lean on John on the baseball side. Um, so I, I think that that personal relationship that I have with both guys is what makes that whole month not only work but fun. You know that that I, I i i don't try to dominate it i don't try to i try to pick my spots i try to ride the action and i try to go where it feels like the game's taking us and then i let them kind of shine i try to and yeah. you're right i mean i think they're so both well prepared that a lot of that stuff is not by luck it's by preparation so i I, I really lean on them. They know I'm going to be ready, and uh, you know we just let it fly after that.
1: And then you know your first World Series, Smoltz was in it, the one that you called. <laughs> yeah. Did you call any Aikman games? Did you get any count? Or, or those were always summer all Madden contests at the I beginning did. of your? I
0: think I think that's when Troy knew his career was over because <laughs> I was. I remember we showed up, Tim Green and I, in let's say. Ninety six, seven. Yeah. It had to have been like 96 or yeah. 97. Yeah. And he came into the production meeting and you could see the look on his face. Like who in the hell are these two guys? And, and Tim was like, Hey, so what's going on? And Troy was like, yeah, what's going on? Look, do you have any questions for me? Or, uh, you know, we're not going to, the small talk is not going to happen because he's used to talking to Madden some role and he yeah. Madden were great friends by the end of all those years of doing all those games so yeah we did a game in Cincinnati that they had on Halloween I don't even know if it was as late as 96 I but but I mean they were world champs you know in that little stretch of time there and the last time they went to the champ game was 95 so it I don't think it was during that time I but yeah, I joke all the time that when Troy saw walked through the door and looked into the production meeting room it was like, okay, this is over. It's time to go. And uh here we are doing games together for this is our 20th year together. That's that's crazy. Uh,
1: that was that was that was something that was mentioned at the Hall of Fame that kind of shocked me. That you that you're the longest paired team of I, I guess um for the lack of a better phrase, a game um top of the flow chart team is that or second longest or, or what that you have been I think we're
0: one it. year we're one year of catching uh Madden and Sumrol. I think it's in there. We're number two. But I think in this day and age to be anywhere near the top of that with his right. transient as some of these rights holders situations are or somebody gets a wild hair and they go, Hey, you know, this guy stinks. Let's get rid of him." Or this guy's just off the field. He's the hot new thing. Let's go get him to, to have been together for 20 years. Now the first three of them, Chris Collinsworth was part of that too. Hmm. But uh, a 20 year run like that is in this day and age is something that I know we're both very proud of. And neither one of us can believe it's been that long because it, it feels like on one hand it's been forever but on the other, it feels like it's just yesterday that, that he came to my golf tournament, and that might have been the year you were there, yeah. um, but it was certainly early on, and I was I was leaning on him right out of the gate, like, hey, nice to meet you finally after our production meeting, but in a different setting, and uh, glad we're going to be doing games together when you come to St. Louis to my children's hospital event. And he's like, I'll, I'll be there, count on me, which he's just that kind of guy, so yeah. I'm, I'm lucky that way. I'm lucky in every way that I get to work with these two.
1: Well, isn't that the name of your book, right?
0: The Lucky Bastard. I I am both. I'm both lucky and a bastard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's that time of year, people. Spring has sprung, and that means spring cleaning, or at least. Well, one thing before we uh, we wrap this up, I want to pull on the strand of that you 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 left before. Did you say you called horse jumping? Is I that- did.
0: What? Yeah, I've called what? horse jumping on Bud Sports. Uh, one of the Bush daughters, B U S C H daughters, mm-hmm. was big into uh, horse jumping. So I, I've done horse jumping at the State Farm Show Arena in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I've done it down in Florida. I've done like. Yeah, oxer jumps and double oxers, and I mean, it's just basically you talk about leaning on an analyst. I, I I had no idea what I was doing. It's like when I hosted uh, live bass fishing. I mean, it's just crazy how little I knew, and that I could get through an hour, an hour and a half of TV, just faking my way through it. But uh, is that
1: where you learned to hate on the other team's horses, Joe? Is that where you? Is that where first bass fishing is where you learned? Yes, it? the other team's
0: horses, the other team, the other team's fish. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I always get accused of rooting against everybody, except in those <laughs> events because I think basically nobody was watching.
1: <laughs> bass fishing. I mean, that is hey, man. You paid your dues. There's no question about all that.
0: Well, there's nothing wrong with that, Rich, no. but it shouldn't be live. There's the, 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 these these this was live and somebody forgot to tell the fish that between 4:30 and 6 eastern that they were supposed to bite on lures because on. nobody caught anything it was horrible Come and then we on. screwed up when it, when the when the the final moment is leading into a weigh in of fish you know, you got, you got a dog on your hand, so to speak. And, uh, we screwed that up too. We, we did, we had the wrong winner. I think I've never gone off the air with like, Hey, so the Cowboys win and actually it was the Eagles. No, in this case, I think we got the wrong winner because we got bad weigh in numbers. So, yeah.
1: Oh man. I will close by asking you the question I'm asking everybody here, your best piece of advice that you've gotten in your career and from whom? Uh, even if it's not your dad, I'm curious as to what it would be or what where you might have gotten it from.
0: Yeah, I thought of three things the other day that my dad said to me, and I'll try to remember them. One, mm-hmm. don't get on the umpires because eventually you you can disagree with the call, but let it go because people get tired of hearing you complain about umpires or referees. Okay. Two, um, unless you think you could make the play 10 times out of 10, don't be hard on who you're broadcasting for because it's really hard and and you weren't good enough and remember that. And then three, broadcast the game like, you know, you don't matter. You're not nobody's if you get hit by a bus walking in, they're still going to play the game. And if you go in thinking that people are tuning in to listen to you, you're going to be going about it the wrong way. So respect the game and what you're covering and and have fun with it. But short of that, you know, if you don't show up, somebody else will call it and they'll still have a winner and a loser.
1: I, I, the, I That middle part, that middle piece of advice about not getting on, like if you, it, it, unless you could make the play 10 times out of 10, you should, you know, pull pull your punch on, yeah. on making fun of somebody. Uh, I'll tell a quick story um, that I wish I had known that because when i first got to sports center in 96 with my stand-up comedy background everything was a joke everything was a gag for me like I, I, like nothing was to be taken seriously and i was trying to entertain the entire time and i wanted to go on assignment and you know i was a fort holder the entire time as a matter of fact i remember watching the world series with you calling the game in october i'd just gotten there in February, and I'm a diehard Yankee fan. They hadn't been to the World Series since 1981, and I could not believe I wasn't at the game. But I was understanding, you know, I I had my dream job, and I remember watching you go through the Fox celebrities who were at the game, Joe, and you got to Kim Fields, the famed Tootie, who I think was in a new show on Fox at the time. And I'm like, I cannot believe Tootie was at the game, and I was not. And um, this is all coming into focus at some point. And I remember I finally got to go on an assignment and I got to go cover um, the Seattle Sonics a year later when they were on that 60-win George Carl team. And I remember walking into the locker room and everyone looked nasty from Gary Payton to George Carl, Sean Kemp. They looked like they were not happy to see anybody walk in the locker room. And I thought to myself, did I make fun of any of these guys on SportsCenter? I took immediate stock, nervous that I'd screwed up. Because I didn't get that piece of advice that your dad gave you, and I I love that one. It's terrific.
0: It's it's real because you know I think we're all guilty of it, of treating. Be, you start treating people that way whether you're you've got the microphone and and it, it's an embarrassing moment if somebody doesn't come through for their team and you know they're trying their best to come through and if they don't or they make a boneheaded play or whatever it's not because they weren't trying or they didn't care. And, and I, you know, I, I think about that all the time, you know, the way I get treated on Twitter, the way you, somebody will say something to you, it's almost like you treat people like they are things and you forget that they have feelings and they have that you know, that stuff hurts. And, and so if you're the one in the, up on the, in the booth, you know, saying stuff, they don't really have any way of getting back at you except to tell you in private moment, Hey, you were an asshole to me. (laughs) And, and I just don't, I don't want that conversation. I've never had that conversation with anybody like, Hey, you were unfair when you said blank. And, and that's a good thing because man, these guys are way better at this than I'll ever understand. And, uh, it's not my job to rip them for, uh, for a mistake. It's just not.
1: Yeah, I remember I, I was just looking around that locker room going, oh, shit. Uh, I Did I say anything about Peyton? What about, you know, uh, George Carl? Because they were staring a hole straight through me. And I'm like, it has got to be me. But I think they just, you know, were shocked by the Celtics that night anyway. And it's just, <laughs> you know, it's it stuck with me to this day. I mean, that's like 24 years ago. And I, I thought to myself, when I go back on the show, I will not – do that anymore I will make sure that I if I have to see anybody ever again I will be able to hold my head up high that I treated them fairly I will never want to go through that again I'll never forget that
0: to yeah. this day yeah it's, it's a bad feeling and and the, actually I said I've never had that the one guy the one guy that I that the Manning family was pissed at me for a long time because they thought oh. I was unfair to Eli and I mean I get it I, I get it. I'm, I'm a proud dad and I'm a proud brother. And if somebody was, you know, and, and there were games where Eli didn't play well. And and if you, and there are times where you have to say, you know, that he's having a bad game, you know, four interceptions or whatever it is, but, but I understand it. And, and I've had conversations. Now they're all, now we're all great friends, but I, I had to go have the conversation. Like, look, it's never been personal. I've only tried to do my job and I completely understand. So let me have it, and and we can go from here, and, and it's been great ever since.
1: Joe, you're the man. Thanks for taking the time. I know your crazy schedule. Uh, best to Michelle Beisner-Buck, who we uh, see on Monday nights on The Worldwide Leader and I work with for a long time, and send my best, brother. You're the best. Thanks for doing this.
0: You too, buddy. You too to your great family. Anytime, Rich. Thanks.
1: That's the man, Joe Buck. Again, I, I've, I met Joe uh, in the uh, late 90s. Because we started pretty much at the same time. I, I mean, when he when he did the NFL on Fox, started there in 1994, I was just starting my TV career in local TV at KRCR-TV, the ABC affiliate in uh, in Northern California in uh, Redding Chico Market. And uh, then I got to Sports Center in 96, and I remember turning on and watching the World Series and seeing Joe Buck. And he's been doing baseball and Super Bowls and NFL, ever since he he did his first Super Bowl, was NFL Network's second Super Bowl. The first Super Bowl he did was New England versus Philadelphia in Jacksonville, Florida. That was his first Super Bowl that he called. And that was the second one that I did for NFL Network. Our first one was the year before in Houston between New England and Carolina when the Patriots and Brady won their second Um, And it was the second one they won with Vinatieri winning it at the very end. And then the next year, they they went back to back. And that's the last team to have gone back to back to win a Super Bowl, New England. And that was the first two Super Bowls NFL Network ever covered. And the first one on the back end of it is uh, the first Super Bowl that Joe Buck has ever covered. And then you could just do every three years from there. And now here he is getting set to have season 28 for him at Fox. And just to tell you a little bit more about what happened, I was in Redding, California, and um, sent a tape to a headhunter, or three of them actually, just under the category of what the hell, right? It's just first class postage. I'll make a tape. I'll make a recording of what I'm doing on the 11 o'clock sports, the 5 o'clock sports for the ABC affiliate in Redding, California. This is, I guess, my origin story in a way. So I did many of my broadcasts in Redding in the bent of SportsCenter. I would do SportsCenter-type highlights and make pop culture references and use voices and do whatever I thought was entertaining over high school highlights that I shot on my own. Well, I mean, the, the company issued um, three quarter inch camera which is this huge ass camera you'd put it on your right shoulder and this be this long coaxial cable attached to this tape deck that you'd have um, on your left shoulder with this big strap and it was this huge contraption and I would shoot the highlights myself and I knew which baskets were good or which football plays were good and then I would use my style on, on set to put together a highlight that looked and sounded like a sports center highlight, but it was just a high school event that uh, I was I was broadcasting for the affiliate that I was working for. And I put together a whole bunch of interviews and a whole bunch of of aspects of of, of my sports casts, local sports casts, and put together a tape that looked and sounded like Sports Center. Cause that's where I wanted to go. And I put a, a tape together for a headhunter. And sent it out and did it for another headhunter and another headhunter. There were three in the United States at the time that were very, you know, popular amongst top 30 markets and who knew at the time ESPN. They saw my tape, essentially. They saw my tape from KRCR TV and I got a call at work one day um, at my sports desk. And the way that the phones there worked, you got a phone call locally, it would be one long ring. If the phone was from outside of the area code, it would go ring, 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 ring. I've never had another phone like that in my entire life. Around <laughs> one. But the reason why I say this is it, ring, ring, when the ring, ring would go, it would be like I think my parents calling me from New Jersey or my brother from Los Angeles. Really, nobody was calling me from out of state, out of area code, pretty much on my work line. And so ring, ring, it goes, and it's somebody uh, who says they're from the William Morris Talent Agency, said that their name was Henry Reich, was his name. And he told me he was an agent, and he had heard that I was one of the hot up and coming sportscasters in America. I'm like, really? That's what I thought to myself. My inner monologue is like, you got to be kidding me because I, I'm not feeling very hot out here. And um, I've said, okay. And he said, can you make me a tape? Can you send me your resume reel right away? I'm like, absolutely, I'll do that. Took his name and his address and hung up the phone and just started staring around to see if, you know, I was being punked. I think this even predated punked. So it's probably on candid camera, to use the phrase, back in 1995 this was. And... I just picked up the phone and called my brother in Los Angeles. I'm like, you never guess what was going to happen. I just got a call from William Morris, and they want a a tape. I'm like, this is unbelievable. He's like, that's unbelievable. Like, great. Hopefully, something can come from it. I have no idea. Hung up the phone. Two minutes later, ring ring again, another outside call. Like, this is ridiculous. There's no way, you know, this has happened before okay, did my brother call my parents or whatever? And I thought to myself, no, no, no. I'm such hot shit. That's ESPN on the phone. And sure enough, I pick up the phone and it's a guy named Al Jaffe who was the headhunter of ESPN. He was the talent coordinator and finder for ESPN. I had sent him unsolicited letters and resumes and tapes for years and it was somebody saying Al Jaffe and I thought for a split second this is my brother telling one of my friends call him right now and tell him it's Al Jaffe because he knew I was sending unsolicited tapes go ahead pull his leg and I almost carpet f-bombed the real Al Jaffe to tell him you got to be kidding me but it was him to say that he had just seen my tape and he loved it And he wanted to have an interview with me within three weeks down in Los Angeles when they were out in Los Angeles for what at the time was an annual award show. They don't have it anymore called the Cable Ace Awards. And he said he and a bunch of ESPN executives are going to be there. Can I make it down there? The problem is, is that that was going to be in November, which is a sweeps month for local television stations, certainly big t- at the time, where November and then another month in the spring, I think. I don't remember, but I just remember November was a big sweeps month. So the station was getting rated, and asking for a day off during a sweeps month night was unheard of. I mean, like it had to be a major family emergency on the spot to ask for a day off and receive it. And I just remember, I think I told my my um, the sports director because I was the number two there. I think I just flat out told him because I was close with him, a sweet man named Mike Mangus. I think I told him ESPN called me. I gotta go. I gotta I gotta take this meeting. And I think he covered for me. That's part of the memory is hazy, but I remember flying down to Los Angeles. Uh, from reading, taking a prop plane from Reading down to San Francisco and then from San Francisco to L.A. And I remember being nervous because that time of the year, San Francisco could get fogged in quite a bit. Perfect day, landed in San Francisco, but I was stuck in San Francisco because there was fog on the ground in Los Angeles of all places. And I didn't have a cell phone at the time. I just didn't. This is 95 or I, I remember borrowing someone's cell phone on the plane to call the person who was – in line to be my agent. And because I didn't have an agent, I was making like $7 an hour. And I remember calling that person up and saying, can you call Al Jaffe and tell him I'm going to be late? She did. And they were understanding I was going to be late. I took a cab straight from the airport to the hotel on La Cienega Boulevard, just south of of, um, San Vicente. Anybody who might know the area where the Beverly Center currently is in LA, that's where I met. Al Jaffe and one executive after another came in and came down. And I did like this whole long interview process, took about two and a half hours, and then it was done. And I had no idea, did they like me, did they not, or what have you. And I got a call a week later, because I go back up to Reading, still doing my sports casts, wondering, have I just won the lottery? Did this just happen? I got a call saying they wanted me to fly out to Bristol now, an audition in the following uh, month in January. So I did that and I flew through Chicago and got all the way to Chicago and um, and and about a foot of snow fell in Bristol, Connecticut and the Northeast area. And I made it as far as Chicago and I had to turn around and go back. And I remember just being so despondent. I'm like, oh my God. I made it as far as Chicago. I couldn't get to ESPN. Will they never invite me again? Is there is am I, am I did I just blow it? Is my opportunity over? And what's going to happen? And um, I, I flew back to you know Reading, and I remember going back there thinking, I I I just spent weeks staring at the ceiling, so excited to get this opportunity to audition at ESPN. And I couldn't even get there. Sure enough, forty-eight hours later, we rescheduled for the following week, and I flew back out there again. And at the same time, my agent called me and said that there's an opportunity to be the number two sports anchor at KPLR in St. Louis, and you should go there too. And I'm like, when that? I mean, like, I'm making seven bucks an hour. Like, I can't be fly all around the country. But I'm like, okay. You know, I called my parents. We, you know, I got enough money to start paying for flights all over the place. ESPN paid for the flight out. I think I had to pay for my flight out to, to St. Louis. And I went there and I tried out at St. Louis um, after I tried out at ESPN. And the reason why I'm I'm setting all that up, and I'll tell an ESPN my my story in future episodes about my tryout at ESPN, that was wild. But I tried out at ESPN and went back and went to St. Louis, and I remember going to St. Louis, you know, and I had to try my hardest because who knows if ESPN is going to happen? But I didn't want the gig in St. Louis if I was going to get a gig at ESPN. And I I tried out at St. Louis and I had that tryout and I had that sit down in that mahogany room where the guy who Joe Buck's just told me he knew who the guy was who owned the station and why is the call letters is his last name and his name even escapes me now after Joe just told it to me my god but uh I, I remember sitting at this table and listening to this guy like sort of lecture me in a way about Jack Buck and I'm like thinking to myself how the hell am I gonna live up to Jack Buck's legacy I don't even know I mean that's Jack friggin Buck in St. Louis I'm like i sure I'll try you know if I'm going to come to this community I mean I just you know as a New York Jewish kid flew all the way up to Redding California to to work and I became part of that community even though it was like living in northern exposure if you remember that TV show about the Jewish doctor in Alaska like it was the Jewish sportscaster in Redding California and I I kind of wanted to tell him like hey man like I'm I'm all in like I just went fly fishing and panning for gold in Redding you know like I get into the community wherever I go By the way, that's what I did. I'd never fly fish before, and I certainly didn't pan for gold. And the place where I grew, the biggest mountains were made of trash, you know, where I grew up from. And that beautiful community in Reading, I was all in on it. So I told him what I I thought he wanted to hear without deep down thinking, uh, how am I going to work for this guy if he's telling me you got to live up to Jack Buck's legacy? You want to talk about pressure? I mean, I'll put the pressure on myself, but I I mean, I I just kind of felt a little uncomfortable leaving that, that mahogany office room. And I remember getting on a payphone before boarding the flight back to Reading to call my agent to say, did you hear from ESPN? And the answer was yes. They offered me a five-year contract. And I'm like, holy shit, this is happening. And I got back on the, the flight and you know, um, I, I, I'm like, fax me the paperwork. I will sign on the dotted line. I signed on the dotted line. I gave my two weeks, and um, you know I left, and you know Valentine's Day of two of uh, nineteen ninety six, and started working at ESPN a week later, and my first Sports Center was March Madness of of uh, of nineteen ninety six, and this all comes back to me right now, talking about St. Louis and talking to Joe and the son of Jack Buck and just thinking the pressure I felt at the invoking of his name. And that's what I love about Joe. And that's why I always, and the fact that I use the word defend him, it's, you know, ridiculous. He's in, uh, now a hall of fame, NFL pro football hall of fame, broadcaster. And, you know, whatever broadcasting wing there is for baseball, he'll be in there too. And deserves it and uh, i love listening to him call a game and i don't understand why he's at all viewed by people as provocative or polarizing i think that's patently unfair and i wanted to use at least this piece of real estate to say it. that'll wrap it up for this edition of just getting started our special edition of Just Getting Started shows involving voices of the NFL rolls on next week. We will chat with you then.